I want to welcome everyone to the LSE's online uh, events platform. My name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department and director of the U.S. Center at the LSE, which is hosting today's lecture. Today's lecture is part of the U.S. Center's Fallon Family Lecture Series, which is made possible by the generosity of the John and Amy Fallon Foundation. We're delighted to welcome Professor Tracy Miras back to the LSE and to join us on the platform today. Professor Miras is, is the Walton Hale Hamilton Professor and a founding director of the Justice Collaboratory at Yale Law School, leading expert on policing in urban communities in America. Her research and many writings focus on understanding how members of the public think about their relationship with legal authorities such as the police, prosecutors, and judges. A member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, she has served on the National Academy of Sciences Committee on Law and Justice, the National Research Council Standing Committee, and the U.S. Department of Justice Science Advisory Board. In 2014, President Barack Obama named Professor Mirez as a member of the task force on 21st century policing. At Yale, she teaches courses on criminal procedure, criminal law, and policy. Before we begin with Tracy, let me just say a few words about today's format. We'll start with her presentation. Uh, we'll then open it up to uh, questions from all of you in the audience. And you can send your questions to us via the Q&A function on Zoom. For those of you on Twitter, the hashtag is LSECOVID19. Normally at this point in the opening, I would ask all of you to put your hands together to give Tracy one of those very warm LSE welcomes. But that of course is not possible today. Um, but I know many of you have been eagerly anticipating uh, her talk. And so in lieu of applause, I encourage you to pose questions uh, to Tracy in the Q&A period and I'll do my level best to get as many in as possible. We've got a fair amount of time to work with and so we should be able to have a pretty robust discussion. Tracy, welcome back to the LSE. It's really great to have you with us again. The platform is yours. Thank you so much, Peter. I'm really happy to be here. Um, well, I'm not happy to be here <laughs> <laughs> in New Haven in my house, which is where I am. Um, but I am really happy to come back to the LSE community and, and speak to you all um, today. Um, I have prepared a, a slightly different version of the lecture that I had uh, planned to deliver in the spring because we have um, a little bit less time, but I hope that uh, in, the, in the course of the next 25 minutes or so can raise uh, a bunch of issues uh, to engage the community uh, with, with questions. So here we go. Um, in 2017, I wrote in the Boston Review that, quote, policing as we know it must be abolished before it can be transformed. One path to that goal is to recenter policing's fundamental nature as a public good. Now, the traditional public definition of a public good is a good that's non-rivalrous and not excludable, a good that anyone can enjoy without diminishing its supply, and no one in the relevant group, i.e. a city or a nation, can be excluded even if they cannot afford to pay for the good. The state typically funds public goods through taxes because the state has a vested interest 
and making such goods available to its citizens. And the state can't rely on the market to provide these goods as such because they're not necessarily or even ideally profitable. Some examples of classic public goods are national defense. Um, I think, and I'm going to argue that local policing similarly falls under this conceptual category. Um, and I think most of us would consider it unwise, silly even, to refuse national security, just as it would seem ridiculous to forego streetlights, clean water, even sidewalks. So I think policing, as a term, is properly understood as a public good. Yet the advocacy of police abolitionists helps us to see the limits of framing policing as a public good. Uh, the work of these advocates raises an important question. How should we think about our public goods when they go bad? Or a slightly different question, what if they were never truly public goods? How do we know when they're bad? The experience that many people have had with the police service today suggests that a conclusion that it's bad is not simply a matter of a service that is incompetent or even corrupt in the typical way one thinks about corruption, which is the warping of the provision of a public service through bribery and the like, private interests. To the extent that we can consider the police service a public good today, I think we can conclude that it's a bad public good when the public, when considered as a whole, experiences the good of the delivery of the service through the concentration of costs of producing that good on a small group, such as Black people and particularly Black men. In such a world, it's difficult to say that the good is good or even truly public. So again, what does it mean to talk about policing as a public good? I think the first thing to say is that we have to understand the importance of safety and security as a building block of community vitality. Here, I'm recognizing that human flourishing is a social enterprise and that people desire to be protected from private predation from each other as they pursue this endeavor. Just like having access to clean water, citizens should have access to safety and security. Thus, a key role of government is to provide a service to its citizens to address this need. But of course, there are many ways a state can and should support community safety. Thinking about these various approaches are the key aspects of policing as a public good, which I will address later. A major problem for now, though, is that in the United States and elsewhere, uh, provision of a certain kind of criminal legal apparatus has been the primary, if not sole, response of the state to support safety and security. In the United States, especially in race class subjugated communities, this has meant an excess of criminal legal exposure. Millions of people have been incarcerated or otherwise processed through various kinds of corrections institutions. If we focus on my particular subject of interest, the police, police service, excess is a watchword. There's too much stopping, frisking, and engagement by police of civilians, especially with respect to low-level ordinances that have little connection to the real problems people face. There is also too much police violence. While we do not in the United States, shockingly, have good and accurate counts 
of the number of individuals killed by police every year. In the last several years, our best estimate of that count has not dipped below 1,000 individuals killed per year. All of this, the state does in the name of providing safety. But defining safety only in terms of reduction of private predation allows those who control the state resources aimed at safety provision to overlook or ignore the incursions on security from government overreach. You'll note that a few moments ago, I said that safety and security together is a key, I'm using safety and security as a singular here, is a key building block of community vitality. I intentionally used both terms to preview the distinction I'm now making between how the state provides resources to address private predation on the one hand, and also the key concern that many have when they experience government overreach with respect to the state's typical response to the crime, to the problem of crime and violence in many neighborhoods. Safety and security can become dangerously bifurcated and too often end up being balanced against one another, which brings us back to the problem of a provision of a public good by concentrating its costs on a very small group. The costs of how policing or the police service, I should say, you'll see why I'm making this distinction shortly, is carried out in the United States has much more than a physical toll on bodies. There are also mental and emotional tolls that are expressed in mental health challenges that people face and limitations on school attainment of children, as my colleagues, Philip Atiba Goff, Susan Bandes, Aaron Carrison, Jeff Fagan, Tom Tyler, and others have shown in their work. There are additional costs, deep ones, deep troubling costs that go to the heart of how we think about civic engagement and citizenship. This brings me to my second point of charting a path forward for understanding policing as a public good. And that is to recognize that police officers, certainly in the US, are a particular kind of legal authority. They play a unique role in conveying important information to members of the public about their role and status as citizens. The relationship that members of the public have with legal authorities is foundational to their understanding of themselves as citizens. And many in your community and um, in the UK have done foundational work to explain this, collect, uh, this connection. Um, in preparation for this lecture a few months ago, I was looking forward to speaking to those folks who whom I'm indebted, uh, such as Ian Loder, Ben Bradford, John Jackson, and Nikki Lacey. Um, their work is critical to my thinking here. Thinking through the question of what it means to understand policing as a public good is that we have to think through an answer to the question of how it is that police today and over time have told people who they are. Social psychologists tell us that legal authorities convey information to, in to individuals through how they treat people. My research and that of others shows pretty clearly that people care much more about how they are treated by the state 
in contrast to the ends that those authorities achieve. Thus, the idea that people will support whatever efforts police make to reduce crime, no matter how they're treated in the process, is refuted by research. What do people care about? First, participation is an important element. People report higher levels of satisfaction and encounters with authorities when they have an opportunity to explain their situation and their perspective on it. Second, people care a great deal about the fairness of decision-making by authorities. That is, they look to indicia of decision-maker neutrality, objectivity, factuality of decision-making, consistency, transparency. Third, people care a great deal about how they're treated by authorities. Specifically, people desire to be treated with dignity, respect for their rights, and with politeness. So this third factor is linked to the first factor about having participation and voice. People want to be listened to. And fourth, in their interactions with authorities, people want to believe that authorities are acting out of a sense of benevolence toward them. That is, people attempt to discern why authorities are acting the way they do by assessing how they're acting. They want to trust that the motivations of authorities are sincere and well-intentioned. People want to believe in their actions with legal authorities, such as police, prosecutors, judges, even public school teachers, that the authority that they're dealing with believes that they count. And people make this assessment by looking at how they're treated, because of course, we cannot read minds. And so people care about this because they're always looking for information about their status in society, individually as well as with respect to group membership. Their treatment by very prominent faces of the state, such as police, give people lots of information. Well, let me give you a few examples. Black people in Ferguson, Missouri, perceived a constant message of inferiority and lack of worth when they were the only group in the city to be peppered with charges about how high their grass was and subsequently subject to outstanding warrants and piles of fees and fines for failing to appear for these picky offenses. People of Baltimore, Maryland, were very much aware that they were treated differently by police if they live on the west side of Baltimore, which is predominantly minority and poor, compared to the Inner Harbor neighborhood. In Chicago, people on the south and west sides, which are over uh, disproportionately black, um, perceive themselves to be treated very differently from residents of the north side. And it, interestingly, I just did a um, a session with the Economic Club of Chicago, where in describing the increase in violence in Chicago, which is right now actually horrific, um, the CEO of the Economic Club of Chicago pointed out that on the north side, um, homicide had gone up from seven to 15 in the last year um, and pointed that out as a, a cause for alarm while also discussing the fact that there were literally hundreds of homicides on the South and West side. The juxtaposition was striking. And George Floyd's very public lynching is another moment pregnant with information about how many people in the United States, particularly black people 
understand who they are vis-a-vis the state. And this way, Black Lives Matter is a clarion call, an obvious one, an angry one, a plaintiff one, all at once. My third point is to distinguish the police service as we know it from the project of policing. You may not have noticed as I've been speaking, but while I've been talking, I've been trying to distinguish the idea of policing as a public good without talking about the police service as a public good. And I have a very particular reason for that. And that is if one understands the distinction between safety, where safety is in my terms, being free from private predation and security, where security today, at least in the context of my talk, means being free from government overreach as the state deploys various strategies in its efforts to support community safety, then I want to say that policing is what the state can do to support safety and security, and that supplying this service does not have to comprise solely armed general purpose emergency first responders. One way of understanding this distinction is to think about ways to deliver the police service we have now in safer, more helpful ways. Now, some of these ideas include that we can send others rather than armed first responders to a whole host of situations in which it would seem unnecessary to dispatch a person with a gun. Noise complaints, permit violations, people experiencing homelessness, or students sleeping in common areas of dorms, which is what happened relatively famously at Yale a couple of years ago. Second and related, policing agencies could engage in much more collaboration with non-policing nonprofits that have expertise in relevant areas and have larger social work components. Third, within policing agencies themselves, there could be much greater emphasis on specialization. We can imagine much more specialization with officers who are not always armed, but who have special training to deal with particular situations, like calls to assist people dealing with mental health challenges. Fourth, we could have folks who are not sworn police officers and therefore who are not entitled to enforce the law doing a great deal of the work that armed first responders do within police agencies. There's little reason for sworn police officers to occupy every position in an agency. Their training and expertise makes them particularly important when it is necessary to use force to compel compliance. And sworn police officers are recruited, hired, and trained to do a job that is, in many cases, imaginary, as opposed to the one that they're actually called upon to do. So replacing officers with civilians within a policing agency who would not receive the specialized training necessary for the very small slice of what police do day to day would necessarily, I think, reduce policing budgets. Note, however, that all of these ideas that I just offered are ideas for the here and now. They are ideas about changing the police service as we know it. Reimagining policing as a public good, however, is a much bigger lift. And what I have in mind is taking seriously democratic deliberation over the state's police power 
which in, is in the United States, and I'm quoting now, very famous opinion of the Massachusetts Supreme Court defining police power, the capacity of the states to regulate behavior and enforce order within their territory for the betterment of the health, safety, morals, and general welfare of their inhabitants. In the U.S., this power has been thought to be coincident, basically, with armed general purpose emergency responders and only those people. In other words, the police power is too often thought to be the same as the police service, which is which in the United States is emphatically not the product of a conscious and deliberative articulation of what Americans believe the connection between the police and the community ought to look like, but instead has involved through evolved through a series of informal arrangements for managing immediate problems of disorder, often having to do with management of outgroups by the powerful. It is an oversight then, I think, to conceptualize the good of policing that flows from the state's obligations in carrying out the police power simply in terms of the police service we have today. I think the COVID pandemic is making this quite plain. Quarantines, vaccinations, mask orders, all sorts of public health regulation occurring right now in the United States is a function of the police power. And while it is true that armed general purpose first responders have played a role in this regulatory apparatus, often I should say in ways that I do not think they should, they are not the only state actors who are playing a role and no one seriously thinks that they should be front and center and they obviously need not be. Now, let's think about violence. For the last decade or so in the United States, it's become increasingly common to think of violence as a public health concern. So just as we think of addressing certain aspects of the pandemic through the police power, we can and should imagine addressing violence in this way. This will be part of reimagining policing as a public good. And this requires a particular kind of goal. What it takes to ensure that communities are vital rather than simply focusing on responding to particularly bad symptoms of lack of state investment in communities. For that is what is happening in neighborhoods that exhibit high rates of violence here. The same neighborhoods that exhibit concentrated violence are those that are weighed down by inadequate housing, failing schools, food insecurity, high rates of maternal death, lead poisoning, and so on, often for generations. And the state's typical response to one of these issues, violence, creates concentrated criminal legal exposure in these same neighborhoods, which exacerbates the collection of issues that I just mentioned. The state's response to violence is not making these communities better. But this does not mean, in my view, that the state should absent itself. Again, going back to COVID, these brittle and fragile communities need state resources more than ever. 
to reimagine policing as a public good, then I think it is useful to consider history and embrace the project of abolition, but to fully embrace it. To fully embrace it, one must consider abolition in the context of Reconstruction. To see the importance of the connection, consider the legal abolition of slavery in the United States. The 13th Amendment is the legal mechanism that abolished slavery. But the passage of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States did not magically create a world in which formerly enslaved African Americans suddenly enjoyed the benefits of citizenship. They were denied for over 150 years. Reconstruction was the real citizenship project. And during the tragically short Reconstruction period, formerly enslaved Americans, millions of them, created space for themselves as citizens in the new social order by reestablishing their families, creating schools, public ones, and churches, purchasing property, defending their newly found legal rights in court, electing hundreds of magistrates, county commissioners, sheriffs, legislators, congressmen. These people worked out the terms of citizenship and created mechanisms for state support of their efforts. This was not in any way a private enterprise. Reconstruction was brought to an end by violent white supremacist paramilitary violence. This violence that the state then perpetuated through state enforced segregation and disenfranchisement through law. Law that was enforced by local police at the time. And the Supreme Court of the United States refused to interpret the Constitution in a way to ensure that the federal government could hold the perpetuators of this violence to account. The rest of the history of the U.S. with respect to suppression of citizenship rights of Black people is well known. What I want to turn now to is the activists who are speaking today. And when they argue that policing must be abolished, I think they mean that the police service, as we know it, must end. Just as during the historical period of chattel slavery, people would have thought it absurd to say we will just change the law so that people who are enslaved will no longer be enslaved, but basically everything can remain the same. Different laws for black and white people, differential access to schools, accommodations, etc. different salaries for people depending on race, that convict leasing would be permissible. It's totally okay for police to brutalize this formerly enslaved group. It is equally absurd to say that police abolition means no police as we currently understand that role and job and everything else remains the same. So to my mind, the abolitionist project of reconstruction is relevant here. And it entails reimagining the public good of policing, which so many have been denied for so long. And this is necessarily um, a, a democratic project. Now, if I had more time, um, I would explain some institutional mechanisms that I think are relevant to this project. Um, and I also have some very interesting data uh, from a project that I have been engaged with, with two political scientists, Beshla Weaver and Gwen Prouse, in which 
We have um, connected people in six cities uh, across the United States and, and Mexico City to discuss their experiences with both police and violence and their own aspirations for the state. Um, I think that's relevant here too, um, to this idea that abolition cannot possibly, or at least for the people who are most impacted, the stakeholders, be conceptualized as a fundamentally libertarian project, but it's really about the reconstruction of a particular uh, vision of the state uh, for these citizens. But I think I'm going to stop now because it's 1130 and um, I will happily go back to some of that other work um, in the question and answer period. Thank you. Thank you, Tracy. That was that was great. Um, you covered, uh, I think, a, a lot of ground and I suspect it's going to generate um, uh, a number of questions. I, I want to welcome uh, people from, we've got people on the platform from Burma, Argentina, Norway, Pakistan, Portugal, India, Vietnam, the US and the UK. So that's pretty good. <laughs> so, um, it's a lot of interest in this topic, um, I, I think. So I actually wanted to, uh, uh, the question I have for you, um, well, maybe uh, I have a couple questions for you, but I actually want to pick up on the institutional point that you raised, because I, I think um, it seems like that's a question about strategy and how one moves from the vision that you lay out in reimagining um, policing as a public good um, from where we are. Yep. Um, and uh, it seems like to me, you know, um, that while it needs to have support at the national level, that there are so many obstacles at the local level that that's not going to get the job done and by itself. I mean, it's kind of like a necessary but insufficient condition or, or you know, maybe that's wrong. And if it's wrong, I, I need to know why. But but that's that seems to be kind of the takeaway, actually kind of the takeaway from from, you know, Obama's um, initiative that, you know, a lot of really good ideas were laid out, yeah. but somehow you've got to get them to take hold at the yeah. local level. And whether it's the police unions that are blocking, I sometimes feel like there's not enough attention that's paid to munis municipal actors, not police, but, you know, okay. Yes. So, I mean, help us kind of unpack that and think about it. I mean, I'm not expecting you to lay out here uh, in five minutes, the strategy going forward, but some of the things that would, would really need to be in there to, to, to make some serious progress in this. Well, it, you're reminding me, Peter, that the last time was, I was here, we had um, a conversation about federalism. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. yeah, and here we go again, right? Yeah. Um, and it might be difficult for your many of the listeners here to understand the nature of that problem. Um, you know, Germany is a, a federal republic, but it's it's not right. anything like 
the, the United States. So, you know, let, let me just lay out a couple of points and then, you know, try to say a few things. Okay. The first thing for the folks listening to understand is that um, the United States government, the federal government is not in any way really in charge of policing in this country. Um, the primary mechanism that the federal government has is to investigate local agencies um, for um, pattern and practice violations of a constitutional nature. And even that is a relatively new um, power. It's a, a statute, Section 14141, which is right. not even 20 years old. And the Civil Rights Department can go in and investigate um, just for constitutional violations. Now, I hold that in contrast to in the UK, like my understanding is the Home Office has the power to regularly audit, if it wants, mm -hmm. any policing agency to for basic compliance with rules and regulations. Um, we have nothing, nothing like that. Okay. So that suggests that the primary source of power to do something, um, as Peter just mentioned, happens at the state, like the state level. Each individual state has plenary power, of course, to control the agencies that enforce its laws, the laws that the legislators promulgate um, within the state. Interestingly, many of those legislators, and we've been actually having this conversation right now, don't understand that they have this power. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and the reason why this has come up is related to something you just said, which is, you know, the Obama task force puts out these recommendations, the federal government at that time provided lots of resources right. uh, to help local agencies. So now I'm sub state level at the city level to, to do this work. You know, the, the federal government would engage with the city of Philadelphia or the city of New Haven or, you know, some tiny little town um, to, you know, make their policing better and give them money and technical resources. Because um, it might seem strange to say this in the context of defunding, but a lot of these agencies are under resourced to do the kinds of things that the municipal government asked them to do, which is way too many things. Right. Um, and so then, you know, you're in a world where we've been for the last four years of the federal government not being interested in this project. Some states actually being interested in it. Let's say California, most notably pushing ahead. Uh, many states not doing it at the state level and then various and sundry cities doing certain things at, you know, to the extent that they have resources or not. Um, so what kind of institutions? Um, I, let me just give you three different ideas okay. there. Um, in a world in which the federal government takes this seriously, um, I think the a better approach than what happened in, during the Obama years is not actually to support agencies directly, but instead create an accountability structure at the national level that creates an accreditation for agencies, basically mm -hmm. giving states the incentive to appropriately um, accredit their agencies by meeting certain nationally set benchmarks mm -hmm. and incentivizing them to do that through resources, right? Because the feds are always giving right. agencies money. Um, then, you know, then the states themselves will have to pass certain baseline laws in order to fulfill this. 
Um, and they are the ones who actually have control <laughs> over the agencies within their borders, even though, as I said, many states don't actually understand this. So I've been having some conversations with state legislators saying, look, you know, it's actually your job to be much more clear about legal authorization for the agencies, the municipal agencies um, within your states. You need mm -hmm. to set these certain baselines. And I have had state legislators say, wait, we can do that. And I'm thinking, mm -hmm. okay, these are legislators who are passing laws that provide individual police officers with the authority uh, to enforce those laws. But these legislatures, laytors and chers, don't understand or don't appreciate the fact that they can actually put limits on those powers. Right. It, it's kind like that's the world that that we live in. Yeah. Um, so I agree with you that it's a hurdle, but I don't think that it's necessarily a political hurdle as much as it's an educational one. Like, you know, if there is an entity that can provide model legislation and we can have the right kind of conversation um, that I think we can make great progress. Last point on an institution, okay. which is too much of the regulation of a police's back end, which gets us to focus on the police service as we know it, identifying problems that they um, engage in and redressing those problems. My whole argument about conceptualizing policing as a public good requires mm -hmm. a lot more front end accountability, right? A much more articulation of what are the goals and projects of this agency, which we actually do in all sorts of other contexts for all sorts of other agencies. There's no particular reason why police and especially police, given the power they have to destroy people's lives, mm -hmm. um, it should be free from this kind of regulation. And there are you know, notable bodies that have been engaged in this project. Los Angeles has a police commission to whom the police commissioner is responsible. Seattle has one. Um, uh, Chicago is about to engage in one. But, you know, th these things don't have to be special. So, for example, I was, and this will be the last thing I say, mm -hmm. um, I was sworn in as a commissioner on the New Haven Board of Police Commissioners about two months ago. Congratulations. Look, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, be careful what you wish for. You know, no <laughs> good deed goes unpunished or whatever. I grade. grew up in Connecticut, so I can say that. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, if you look at the charter for that commission, right. the, the plenary power is incredibly broad. And the commission hasn't used it, right? So... They just need somebody to tell them what they can do. Yeah, you know? That's great. And, that's a great. And, and that, that's my project, actually, for the next three years. And, and you know, I think we, we demonstrate by doing. Well, you know, that's great because that's really like the power of, of, of the American system of like these local incubators so that, you know, potentially it becomes a model for, for, for other parts of the country. So we've got already a series of questions that have come in. Um, so some of them are, um, uh, you know, you drew this distinction between kind of policing here and now, or I think that was the phrase versus kind of reimagining policing. And this is, I, I would say something is, is, a, is a question about, um, well, it's really about both, it seems to me, but it's pressing in, in the here and now. Um, this comes from Emile Cunning, uh, uh, who's at UCL. 
studying history and politics. So what is your view on how to deal with qualified immunity for police officers so that they're held accountable um, for their actions? And more broadly, as law enforcement has been a decentralized affair, how can reforms be instituted on a national scale? Now you've kind of addressed that more generally, but on the, on the qualified immunity question, you know, yep. if you could take that up, I think that's, that is such a pressing issue in the U S right now. It is. And it's a little bit perplexing to me, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, let me be clear. I, I think that qualified immunity is um, an unnecessary doctrine that the court made up. So in saying that I'm a perplexed by the emphasis on it, I'm not saying that I think it's no, it's unproblematic. Right. The reason why um, I find the emphasis on it a little bit perplexing is if we got rid of qualified immunity, it's not at all obvious to me anyway, um, that plaintiffs who seek redress from officers would receive a remedy. And that is because um, an individual officer is unlikely to have serious resources, right? Mm -hmm. So people pay a lot of attention to qualified immunity, but they don't pay very much attention to a Supreme Court decision called Monell, in which the court said that there is no respondeat superior liability. So what do I mean by respondeat superior liability? If you work for a, a private company in, the, in carrying out your duties, um, you sue the person, but you also sue the company to the extent that the company made it possible for that person to harm you. That's a basic tenant of tort liability, right? And it's a basic tenant of tort liability that the Supreme Court got rid of in a case called Monell. So the bottom line is, I think abrogation of qualified immunity without institution of respondeat superior liability for cities is not going to mean very much. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so we, we have a question here from somebody who was on the platform with you back in June. So a question from Nikki Lacey, oh, yeah. uh, who's, who's on here with us um, today from uh, the LSE um, uh, School of Law uh, and is a, an affiliate of the U.S. Center at the LSE. So here's your question. Um, thinking in terms of your important historical argument that you've laid out here, how concerned are you at this point in history, in American history, about the emergence of alternative private policing groups, which may try to subvert the aims of reforms by aspiring to make policing a public good worth the name? Do you, do we have to think about how to tackle this part of the reform reimagining process? Yeah. Um, thanks, Nikki, for that question. And I'm sorry I'm not <laughs> there with you. I was really looking forward to dinner. Uh, <laughs> so let me just say that part of the reason why I pose this idea of policing and as a public good in the terms that I do is that um, I'm responding, you know, the original version of this lecture was actually a response to folks who were making arguments that um, police abolitionists or folks who are discussing defunding police were actually seeking a retraction uh, of the state. And 
Um, that's a huge concern of mine, um, as you can see. Um, and it, my understanding from you know my research on the portals project with Vesla Weaver and Gwen Prowse, as I was discussing earlier, um, suggests to me pretty clearly that that's not what people who have a stake both in being free from um, violence, but also being free from government overreach are, are seeking. So, you know, th there is a huge concern actually um, in the, the, the rise of, of private policing. And, and I think what that means obviously is that the people who have resources are gonna have it um, and they're gonna have it in a way that's not accountable to the whole. Let me give you another example, which is super complicated and might be controversial. Um, I'm sure it is controversial, but, uh, you know, when I have conversations about campus police, so I don't know how it works in, in the UK, mm. but in the US, many university police are sworn police officers. So the Yale police can enforce the law just like the New Haven police. Mm. And the there's a, a movement on campus among students to say, well, these police should be decommissioned. Um, we should get rid of them. And, you know, I think my concern about that argument raises exactly your question, because I know what Yale is going to do <laughs> if that happens, right? <laughs> They're just going to hire a bunch of armed private security guards who have a contractual relationship with the president of Yale and don't have a more general contractual relationship with the, the public at large. And to me, that's, that's a mistake. Um, you know, maybe people have a different view. That's why I said it might be controversial, but I think that issue raises exactly the problem that you describe. And yes, I'm worried about it. And, uh, you know, my worry is translated into pushing for more public and less private. I want to ask ask you a question and uh, actually go back in a sense to uh, where you ended and you um, you you referenced um, some recent some current research that you're collaborating with um, others on and I I, um, I I was struck in a recent interview that you did in Politico um, I mean very recent like just the last few days I think it. it you noted that when it comes to policing in the United States, where this is a great phrase, but it's a very unfortunate situation, we're living in an evidence-free zone and um, that we don't even really know, I was struck by this, that we don't even really know how many law enforcement agencies there are in the country. I mean, the best guess guesstimate is like 17,000 or so, but nobody can really verify the number. And so, so, so I think... You know, and I, I can see that, you know, from your work and from what you're saying here, that you're very focused on this. But I'm, I'm wondering, what is it that needs to happen to, it's almost like just generating a database. So, so a bad, I mean, one example of this is so a bad cop in one place can't move to, a, to another place because there's an actual damn record, you know, online and so forth. Um, I mean, is this... It seems like it's not, I, I don't know, is this something that universities can help with through, in academics, through research? Does this really have to come from the national level? I mean, where are you on this? How does one- I think it has to come from the national level. And mm -hmm. and that's, and the, the point you raise is related to my earlier point about accreditation. So, 
you know, let's loop back to that conversation. Um, I think in the Politico piece, I, I noted that we know exactly how many schools there are in the United States, both public and private, yeah. by the way. Yeah. And that is because those schools have to go through a certain accreditation process that is, you know, um, accountable to the national government, just in terms of data collection. We have nothing like that, nothing like that um, for the U.S. And sure, I, I think there are things that universities could do, but it would still necessarily be patchwork because universities can't compel every agency to to do this. You know, like we would you would need that kind of of legislation, I think, in order to um, to have the kind of accountability you're talking about, both at the agency level, but also at the individual officer level. So, for example, for doctors, there is a national registry, Mm -hmm. national registry, you know, and if you, you know, uh, amputate the wrong hand or, or whatever, like, you know, th- that's noted in this national registry and everybody knows it, right? Um, we have nothing like that for policing and it, and it, um, for the police service. Um, let me just continue to use my terms uh, that I've been the, using. The obstruction is mostly at the, the state and local level or the obstruction is, I mean, because it's just like, a, it's, it's at one level, it's like a no brainer. Right. You know, um, and so, um, so even some states have these kinds of yeah. registries, but then they don't have laws that actually prohibit agents, you know, agency B from hiring agency A conditional on being okay. in the registry. Um, but then there are other states that don't even have the registry. And if you actually leave a state, you know, and go from Minnesota you know, to New Mexico, then it, there's no particular reason why it should follow you. Okay. So I want to welcome the folks that are joining us from Russia, Brazil, and Spain. Um, we have all the bases. We have, almost have all the bases covered. So we're getting there. Um, uh, there's a question here that, so this is a change kind of moving in a different direction from, um, from Ballant uh, Kaltenecker. I think I've got that right. Um, I, I want to pick up on the tail end of the question because there's actually several questions, but he asked, could you elaborate on how the status of the police is communicated to armed policemen? And I think more particularly how they see themselves you mm. know, as a result. I mean, and I, I guess this is kind of, you know, like the the culture of it. I mean, I think one thing that has struck so many people in looking at the images from, you know, uh, since May and, and the killing of George Floyd is just, I mean, how many police are really in serious military gear. And yeah. I think that's been a wake up call for a portion of America that has not been exposed to that and so forth. But one wonders also about what that does to policemen themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this isn't my area of expertise, but I can point balance uh, to some really interesting work. Um, So here's a, here are a few things we know. We, there's evidence suggesting that, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the social psychology of social dominance theory. Um, 
by uh, led by folks like Jim Sedanius, among others. But there's some evidence showing that police officers compared to other groups of people are more invested in social dominance theory and have an orientation towards authoritarianism. That's probably not surprising, but you know, that's one answer to how the job sort of changes your outlook. Um, we also know from work of my uh, former student, now uh, assistant professor at University of Texas, Michael Sierra, that um, the job itself encourages people to pursue dangerousness in a weird way. So um, weird way is my term, not Michael's. Um, so he's written a book <laughs> called, or his dissertation is called The Danger Imperative. And he shows how, you know, the construction of the job focusing on guns and rushing in to any time a police officer is called, uh, even in situations where it seems relatively low stakes, um, you know, encourages them to perceive that they're under threat all of the time. Um, and he juxtaposes that perception about them being threatened by others to the things they do to threaten themselves as if, um, as in, as they're rushing to these calls, many of them don't wear their seatbelts and get in car crashes. Um, you know, there's a lot of evidence. I don't know about the last two years of data, but when Michael presented his paper, he showed pretty clearly that more police officers die from failure to wear their seatbelts every year than being shot, right? And the reason why they don't want to wear their seatbelts is, get this, they are worried that when they arrive to their destination, they can't get their seatbelt off quickly enough, and that would hinder their ability to get their gun. No. And yet, right? So mm. that's another way that they're, <laughs> that right. the outlook is shaped. A, a third thing I can say is my colleague, Philip Ativa Goff, shows that they're very uh, this is a different kind of threat, um, worried about the stereotype threat of being perceived as racist. So um, Philip Ativa Goff, um, Rick Trinkner, Aaron Karrison, that should be enough names for you to find the paper, um, show that when police officers fear being perceived as racist, they are actually more likely to use force in an encounter. Why? Well, because typically an officer will think that they can gain compliance simply by reasoning with someone. But if they fear being perceived as racist, they won't engage in reasoning. They won't believe that they can rely on the legitimacy of their authority and they go straight to force. So there is a confluence of things happening in the construction of the job that subjects police officers to very um, deleterious um, stereotype threats. And um, I think is encouraging this mindset that we're seeing in the paper, uh, in the media, that's, that's not only not good for the people that they're engaging with, but as the questioner suggests, not good for them, right? So if we actually care about the health and safety of uh, members of the police service, we would also, it's time to fundamentally rethink what they do. So we're... Um... We've got some more questions coming in. I'm going to set aside my 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 own burning questions. Um, there, there's a question here from uh, Anushka Gandhi. Um, so 
she would like to hear more about um, your thoughts on kind of grassroots, bottom-up um, uh, approaches and whether they can realistically be incorporated into making policing a truly public good. I mean, I think this is where you're kind of, you know, coming from in general, but we've got two minutes. So maybe you can use this also to just round this out. Yeah. So I guess I would say, thanks for the question that absolutely. I mean, they're the ones who are shaping this conversation right now. This is the beginning of this idea of, um, you know, a democratic deliberation over this, this public good. I don't think that members of the public necessarily are particularly good at thinking about how, um, you know, how the government should provide the particulars of a service. But what they are good at is being very clear about what they need to feel safe, right? And so then it's the job uh, of experts, I think, <laughs> to figure out the best way to do that. And, and anybody, uh, I'll just be colloquial here, with half a brain should come to the conclusion that the way we're trying to satisfy those needs um, is not simply with a general armed, general purpose armed first responder, right? Th that doesn't make sense. You know, the last thing I guess I will say is that about this deliberation is really key. And I'm, I'm tracking Bonnie Honig, who's a political theorist at, at, at Brown. And, and she made an argument that in thinking about, um, you know, democracy, uh, people spend a lot of time often, uh, uh, considering who comprises the demos, right? Like, who are we going to elect, you know, to carry out our wishes? And what we don't focus as much on is what she calls um, the objects of democracy, right? We think about the subjects of democracy, that's the demos. We think less about the objects of democracy. Um, and she says the objects of democracy are public things. Well, that's my, you know, that's my close here, right? Policing is a public thing that we need to deliberate about um, as, um, as part of the project uh, of citizenship. And, and that's really um, my goal here. Tracy, thank you. That's a that's a, a great place to leave it. I, you know, I I, I want to say, I mean, I, you know, we we were planning to have Tracy in person back in March, uh, and the whole thing got disrupted because of of COVID. And you've been like a really good sport to kind of come back here, uh, do this online with us. Actually, this is the second event you've done online with us. Um, and this has been a really terrific discussion. And I think I've certainly found it very informative and helpful. Um, this is such a tough nut to crack. And I think probably everybody else on the platform did as well. So thanks again so much for being with us. And um, to everybody out there, thank you for joining us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay two meters apart. <laughs>